This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, back from vacation, and I'm here only with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello, it's just us two. Yeah, what happened to everybody? It's summer, I guess it's a... Uh, August, it's hard, hard to get anyone to do anything. I know. I wish we were in Europe where everyone just like genuinely takes August off and uh, we could all just be sitting on a beach somewhere. But instead, we're talking into microphones, talking about movies that you watch indoors. Yay. Ideal summer activity. It's kind of an interesting period now because we've got the fall festivals basically right around the corner. Um, but there's kind of an interesting uh, couple of awardsy things happening. And before we get into movies that are actually out right now, and then uh, later on, Richard will have your interview with Carrie Coon, who's Emmy nominated for a different awards focus. The trailer for Darren Aronofsky's Mother broke in the last week. And uh, we don't usually just talk about trailers here, but I think it's so interesting. And the movie itself is so interesting that. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. It was not what I thought it was going to be. Were you surprised by it? I was, you know, because we it was this project that was sort of shrouded in mystery and people knew it was maybe a horror movie, maybe, you know, kind of thriller. But that was kind of it. And so tonally, we weren't really sure what to expect. And then this trailer came out and showed what looks to be. I don't know, sort of a Rosemary's Baby-esque thing, maybe, where this woman played by Jennifer Lawrence is is being... I don't know, used for nefarious things in, in, in some kind of family environment. Javier Bardem is her husband, I believe. So yeah, I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I think the most interesting thing about the movie right now is its sort of release date shuffle where it was originally going to come out in October, I believe, right? And then they moved it to some middle of September right after it screens at Toronto. It's also going to be at the Venice Film Festival earlier. So I don't know what that means in terms of its, you know, quality or prestige factor, but it's sort of arriving in this odd way. Yeah, I think it's interesting to have it coming in September because, I mean, when you read the uh, box office tea leaves, like usually September is kind of a summer holdovers, like a lot of the Resident Evil movies open in September. And every now and then you'll get something that's interesting, like uh, September and October are kind of a time for like the Argos or the arrivals of award season where they have a big audience play. And September, I feel like it's them saying like, we're not in this for the awards. We think the audiences will go for this. So come what may. But I don't think it's worth counting it out for awards just because it's doing this kind of weird shuffle. No, I I think that increasingly release date it's less of a of an indicator of prestiginess than than it used to be. I mean, it still obviously comes into play to some extent because if you're really trying to mount an awards campaign, you have to kind of think about the tail of the movie and like when once it comes out, I guess, and it gets good reviews, but like how long does it last or linger in sort of people's minds? So that's I think why you know traditionally movies are coming out in November, December that they want to win Oscars. But but yeah, I, I don't think September is an absolute you know no go then. And it's Aronofsky, who, you know, last time he made a psychological kind of horror movie, uh, Black Swan, it was a, a huge sort of surprise box office hit with a low budget, but it also got nominated for a ton of Oscars and won one for Natalie Portman. So, you know, like, uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't count him out, even if this is just some small genre exercise, because the last time he did that, it worked out really well. 
yeah, I think it's really cool to say like, oh, I'm just here with this genre exercise and, you know, I'm just going to go for the audiences. But my bet would be that it surprises us in some way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the cast is really killer. You've got like Jennifer Lawrence and Darren Aronofsky dating behind the scenes. There's a lot of there's a lot of reason to be intrigued by it beyond even the pretty good trailer. Yeah. And and I think for me and for many people, just judging by the Twitter reaction, um, the continued uh, this is a, this is another sort of um stepping stone on on the michelle pfeiffer sans or whatever you want to call it uh yeah. you know, where she's really come roaring back in a way uh with uh, a, a lauded but tiny movie at sundance um earlier this year and and this and and obviously the the uh, bernie madoff uh, movie on hbo um and she, uh, murder on the orient express yes that's right year. yeah so she's yeah. she's doing a lot and this could be a pretty juicy one i think i mean the movie's called mother it's not clear if that refers to jennifer lawrence's character or it could refer to michelle pfeiffer's character who does seem to be in the trailer judging by the trailer she seems to be playing jennifer lawrence's maybe evil mother or uh, i don't know but um <laughs> but you know i i love her in that kind of role you know i think back to her sort of ambivalent you know half villain half not um catwoman or uh she was in a great movie or i think it's great many a weird mike nichols movie called wolf with uh, jack nicholson where oh, she's not a villain in that but it's it's a kind of dark sort of sexy kind of movie so um this could continue in that vein uh which we know her to be great at so i'm excited yeah uh, I, I think I'm way more interested and also kind of scared between that and it. I think September is going to be a challenging month for people like you and me who mm-hmm. uh, can't really handle horror that well. Uh, yeah, I had some difficulty with the it trailer. You know, yeah. uh, Mother is sort of more in the I, I can that's m- closer to what I can handle horror wise. But um, well, at least judging from the trailer. So I don't know. But yeah, I <laughs> I will <laughs> I will go into it trepidatiously, I think. Yeah, we're going to need to like plan some trips to bars afterwards to uh to calm down after these screenings. One kind of bit of inside baseball that um I think we can I can say is that I, you know, uh, based on the trailer I I emailed a publicist for the film and I, for mother and I was like, "Oh, any chance you're, do- you're doing screenings pre-tiff just because it's coming out so soon after the fe- or you know, after I get back from the festival." Uh and a publicist told me that she hadn't even seen the movie. So Oh, interesting. Who knows what that indicates? But you know, again, it'll be at Venice, um, and I, I, my guess is it'll make something of a splash there. It seems, doesn't it feel like a very sort of movie the Italians will embrace? Oh my God, yeah, like the, the home of Dario Argento. It right. seems, uh, it seems made for it. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So to go back to the actual current movies you can see, or at least fairly soon, uh, The Glass Castle opens this week. And I think we've talked about it earlier this summer as being in kind of the help 
uh, the Butler slot of like mm. an early August sort of prestige movie play. Um, and I, because I was on vacation, I think I missed like the embargo lifting or most discussion about it. So I don't know a ton about if it's any good. So maybe Richard, you can talk me through it. Yeah, I had high hopes for it uh, just because, uh, you know, I went in thinking that I wanted some kind of cathartic emotional release and I wanted to cry, basically. <laughs> and Which uh, is what I, the trailer definitely promised. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, there are it does have its moments, but I, you know, I found it uh, a little bit lacking in a certain some in soul or something like that. I think that, you know, this is based on a huge best-selling memoir by Jeanette Walls, um, a former gossip writer uh, for New York Magazine and other places. MSNBC, I believe, you know, and, and, and so this book was big and it was on bestseller list, I think for years. Yeah. It feels like everyone's mom read it at some point. Yeah. And so it has this kind of weight of expectation. And I think that with these, um, that kind of movie where it, the source material is so popular and so beloved, I think that there can be this peril in adapting it where you want to include all these bits from the book that people like or, or relate to or, or moves them. But what that results in, and so this movie was, uh, the screenplay was written by uh, Andrew Lanham and Destin Daniel Cretton, who also directed, who also um, did um, Short Term 12. Which was Brie Larson's big breakout movie. Exactly. And she's the star of this. Exactly. Um, you know, so in that, in their adapting of it, I think that they just try to put too much in. And so it's this saga about a life that just feels too episodic and too sort of plotting and there's not really an arc until the very end and yeah so it, it it's it's kind of a it's kind of a shame despite the fact that there are some really good performances in it yeah we were i feel like i can't remember if we talked about this on the show or uh, otherwise but we talked about it maybe being woody harrelson's year like he's got this kind of big not, not I don't know about showy, but the kind of role that people win Oscars for, where it's like the the troublesome dad who's in the supporting role. Uh, how does that pan out? It's a big performance. It's a, it's a lot of performance, you know. It's, um, <laughs> and and I I I I, I guess maybe I'm revealing some critical failing here, but like I I had a hard time appreciating the performance because I hated the character so much. Ah, uh, and I think you're kind of supposed to hate the character until you're not supposed to. It's it's a it's a story about a, an abusive father essentially you know um he was this kind of nomadic alcoholic guy who dragged his family all over the the american west and then back to his hometown in i believe west virginia or virginia um uh all the while you know sort of spouting off this kind of pseudo philosophy about living kind of off the grid or whatever or not you know uh and but but at, at, at the core i mean this was an abusive situation and um and uh, he was abusive towards uh the mother uh, rose played by Naomi Watts. And so he's this really monstrous guy that in the end, you kind of are supposed to feel this swell of sentiment for him, but I just didn't. Um, and so I guess that means that Harrelson was good because he was convincing as this complete nightmare. But, but at the same time, I couldn't really embrace it the way that maybe I'd wanted to. So, you know, it's another good sort of a big Harrelson performance, but uh, whether it will really register, um, given the kind of muted response to the movie and its odd placement in, in, in on the calendar, I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, it feels uh, it reminds me of Captain Fantastic in the way you described that. But that mm -hmm. movie feels like it was it, that character was a lot more sympathetic than uh, what Woody Harrelson's doing here. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, in the Captain Fantastic uh, situation, like that, that's you're sort of just. You you don't like what he's doing, but you understand why he is in a way uh, where this is just this really selfish guy who pretends that he's not selfish and pretends that he's doing this all for his family when he's really just his own kind of weaknesses and failings are, are, are you know, his primary motivators. And 
and the movie is divided essentially into two timelines one when Jeanette Wallace's character is a kid and one when she's more grown up and played by Brie Larson and in the grown up section which Brie Larson is very good in I think in a subtle way there is some sort of you know coming to terms with this and reckoning with it um, that does you know put the blame on the on the dad uh, in a way that feels just but but uh, it, it, it tries to kind of get you to love him by the end in this way that I feel like well damn it they let this abusive guy win you know yeah, uh, yeah. and that that frustrated me so it's a weird year for Woody Harrelson so he's had War for the Planet of the Apes out this year which you know got great reviews and I don't, I don't know that anyone ever talks about the humans in those movies it's mostly the apes yeah and he's got this and then three billboard three billboards outside epping missouri which is a martin mcdonough movie and then also his lba lbj movie directed by rob reiner is coming out this fall apparently yeah uh, after where he plays lbj after premiering to <laughs> very little notice uh, at toronto last year uh, yeah so people have seen that one yeah he's having a big year and i don't know if that was an accident he you know he also had wilson the uh, mm-hmm. that was at sundance right? yeah nothing has quite hit maybe the way that uh it could have uh he's great in apes you know i'm 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 curious to see him in in three billboards which will be i believe at venice and then at toronto that has potential i mean i really like martin mcdonough's movies uh he did um seven psychopaths and in bruges it looks to be much more of a showcase for Frances McDormand, who's the lead, mm-hmm. but but you never know. I mean, you know, there's always Woody sneaks in there with some supporting actor nominations here and there, right? So yeah, that oh, could he happen. D- he's had it's kind of a surprising Oscar run where he gets nominated for movies that like aren't necessarily on everyone's. I mean, The Messenger, I think, is the yeah. you know obviously People versus Larry Flint was a while ago at this point. I don't know. I feel like I'm rooting for him. Like the True Detective hype, like bumped him up to such a place, and it feels like he like keeps capitalizing it, keeps capitalizing on it, and his moment's going to come. But I guess it's not the glass castle i don't think so i mean i you know i i can only speak for my own sort of uh reaction to it but that said like other reviews have not been that positive so yeah um well you also wanted to talk about another movie out this week that i don't think is as much of an obvious awards play but ingrid goes west seems uh pretty interesting yeah yeah that's a movie that was at sundance and one i missed there and i I only i caught a screening of it um Actually, I watched it on a computer uh, recently and, um, you know, not not the best way to see a movie, but what can you do? Uh, So it's this movie uh, directed by Matt Spicer, um, who uh, has done a couple really small things, a couple shorts. But this is really his first big kind of, you know, feature. Um, And it stars Elizabeth Olsen and Aubrey Plaza. Aubrey Plaza is this... um, kind of sad sack girl who a woman whose parents have just have died and 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 she becomes obsessed um with this instagram minor instagram celebrity played by elizabeth olsen so it's about um sort of news the problems of social media in a way that we're just starting to see reflected on film um which i think is kind of exciting because it's obviously a major part of people's lives now um and it hasn't quite entered gotten to the sort of fictional realm uh yet uh, yeah, it still feels like something that's like you write about on Twitter and don't uh, like deal with in serious art. Well, yeah, because I think that, you know, and this is a problem that's gone back to, I don't know, the net or whatever. It's, <laughs> it's hard to make compelling f- t- uh, film or television about people sitting and staring at a screen, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think we're gradually figuring out how to make that interesting. Well, that or it's just become more interesting to us because it's such a big part of our lives. Um, and and Ingrid Goes West, which is a dark, dark comedy, um, I, I think really taps into very, very observantly and very acutely into um, that particular 
kind of pang that you have or some of us have when we delve into Instagram and and staring into someone's very uh, polished and and curated life and just wishing ourselves into it and wanting to be them or be their friend or date them. I mean, you know, we're in peak fire island season for me and so i'm looking, look, <laughs> looking at those instagrams and you know w- you know th- thinking twice about the whole wheat bagel i just ate um you know <laughs> so i can i can relate to it and i think it's really sharp in that way i think it it goes a little over the top as it goes but it's two great performances from aubrey plaza who's had a good year with legion and now this and i but i think elizabeth olsen who um, was just profiled by her own josh duboff on yeah the site. great profile for nvf.com beautiful photographs by justin bishop she's really good in this in a very in a subtle way playing this person who you want to hate but also love and she's not a you know it's not there's not some grand reveal that she's some queen bee bitch she's just she's she's a little bit mean sometimes but she's mostly fine and i think that playing that balance and and instead of turning her to a villain i think is a really smart bit of writing and and of acting because that feels like what happens when you meet someone whose Instagrams you admire is like you kind of want them to be like, aha, their life is terrible, too. But for the most part, they're also just people who maybe are more genetically blessed than the rest of us. Exactly. Exactly. I think that, you know, we we have a tendency to both put these people on a pedestal and assume that everything's perfect. But then another part of our brain kicks in and says, well, but they're probably this. They're probably mean or they're probably miserable. Or they're probably dumb or whatever. And, you know, in my experience, I have met some of these instagram people who i have longingly gazed at you know through my phone and honestly like a lot of times they've been like nice and kind of smart and kind of funny and it's like oh i guess <laughs> i guess they're just lucky or lucky yeah. or whatever but yeah so the movie grapples with this stuff in in ways that i find intriguing and it's you know it's a small movie but like i i i'm really eager to see what else comes out of this kind of line of thinking you know on film and in television like what what are we going to do with all this new experience? And it, it's exciting to see writers and directors finally kind of starting to grapple with it because there's a lot to be said about it. It's how so many people, younger people especially, spend their lives. So what I like seeing it about being about adults, like I think you can make the story about teenagers. And yeah. I think there have been various attempts about like teens being seduced by social media. Course, uh, yeah. But it happens to 30 somethings, which is, you know, I, I guess Elizabeth Olsen might be 30, but close enough. Yeah, it happens at 30 somethings. And it also, you know, it, with it being adults like who have agency and can actually act on these things and and act rashly. And, you know, I mean, as the title would suggest, Ingrid, played by Arbor Plaza, moves. I mean, she goes west. And, um, you know, so so it gives them uh, them being adults. They have a little more agency to do things and um, which makes it kind of more creepy, I guess, you know, because yeah. um, a, a teenager sitting in their bedroom, in theory, can't really act on their Instagram obsession or they can just like, gaze from afar. But when you're grown up and you have a little money, you know, you can do a little bit more. Well, I look forward to you going to the Telluride F- Festival to find your favorite Instagrammer who lives out there and uh, take some great shots of the mountains. Katie, you weren't supposed to say that. That's really why I'm going. <laughs> I mean, you'll also see some movies, I assume. Ooh. But, uh, you know, your your cover is yeah. <laughs> safe with me and the podcast listeners. So let's move on to your conversation with Carrie Coon, who is Emmy nominated for her role on Fargo, but also had a pretty stellar turn on The Leftovers, which just ended. I feel like we've talked about her on this podcast a lot because we're all a bunch of mega fans. Hmm. Uh, and Joanna did a really fun interview with her earlier this this year where she was like, I'm never getting Emmy nominated. It's not going to happen. And then, you know, we took the credit when she did. So I'm curious about what you guys talked about since you, uh, you've you been following her work pretty closely. We kind of lead off with me just sort of asking her to go back and talk about the remarkable few years she's had. I mean, she was really, she was, as she says in the interview, a Midwest theater actress, not even a, a Chicago theater actress, exactly, who got this role in a Steppenwolf production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf uh, with Tracy Letts and Amy Morton uh, that 
was in Chicago, then in DC, and then on Broadway, and kind of took the world by storm. And she met and fell in love with Tracy Letts, so she got a husband out of the deal, but also got a Tony nomination. <laughs> and then it's like the best two for one deal of all time. Like yeah. you got a career and a husband out of one role. <laughs> yeah, seriously, where's that for me? Um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, so that happened and then it was kind of off to the races and she got a role, a good juicy supporting role in Gone Girl and then The Leftovers and now Fargo and she's in Steven Spielberg's movie coming up and uh, she's having a really good run. So we talked about that and how that feels. And then we went into some more specifics about The Leftovers and Fargo, which I think we talked about how they're sort of of a piece in terms of the political moment we're in and our feelings of despair. So she's great to talk to. Really fun. Um, I think it's a good interview. Well, I'm here today with Carrie Kuhn. Carrie, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, I said to you off mic that we actually met once here in the elevator. Mm-hmm. I think you were here for something else. So I'm Did glad that we, we can... do anything embarrassing. No, I just said, elevator? I think I said, I love you. I love the leftovers. And then you were very nice. And then promptly we parted ways. You know? I'm glad I'm glad I was nice. And yeah. that I didn't leave you weeping in the elevator. No, um, though you have left me weeping uh, recently with <gasps> leftovers and Fargo and just so many you know, you. incredible moments on both those shows. Um, so I want to talk about both of those, obviously, but I kind of want to start, if we can, by going back mm-hmm. um, to when you sort of first entered the larger kind of public consciousness outside mm-hmm. of Chicago theater with um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yes. Yeah. So you were Tony nominated for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that mm-hmm. you did with your now husband, Tracy Letts yeah. and Amy Morton. Um, and who played? Uh, Madison Dirks. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Madison that's Dirks. right. So that was your kind of first foray into like New York and New York theater and then bigger stuff. Did that feel kind of that monumental as it seems kind of from the path? I mean, from my perspective, changed everything in my life utterly. Yes, it was um, my first really my first major role in Chicago. I had only done that was my third play in Chicago. I had just come from doing a show at the Goodman. Anna Shapiro had just won the Tony for August Osage County. And then previously I'd done a show at a place called Remy Bumpo, which is a smaller theater. And then we had 18 months between our run in Chicago and our Broadway run. So I kind of did a couple of other plays in the storefront scene, but I really didn't come up in that city. I hadn't been much of a staple like a lot of the actors I know are. So it was pretty shocking when it turned out. I mean, our, the producer came to our very last performance in D.C. So we very narrowly got this offer to come to Broadway. Mm-hmm. And then they had this idea of doing it on the 50th anniversary. So we had to wait which is terrifying because you, you're convinced you're going to forget the whole thing. Right. So we would get together and run the lines every couple of weeks. But anyhow, yes, we were in New York. We actually closed in March, well ahead of the Tonys, not thinking we'd be remembered at all. But I ended up staying in New York and taking meetings and doing all that. So I met with Ellen Lewis, a great casting director here, Chicagoan originally, and had a nice meeting. And then so around probably post-Tony Award time, I think sometime in June, they brought me in to read for The Leftovers, and I had read the book, so I knew the story, and I knew who Nora was, so they put me on tape. And about 10 days after that, I met with Damon Lindelof, and everybody said, now you're going to jump through some hoops and get studio approval, and you're going to test and all this stuff. But because Damon had such creative control, I just got an offer. Um, and that was my first. I had done guest star spots, but right. I had never done a series. So, And we didn't know if it was going to get picked up, so it was the pilot. And then about oh, a couple weeks later, I was back home in Chicago, and I did a taped audition in my living room for the for Gone Girl with a, this oh, right. buddy of mine yeah. who taped it. He since opened a taping business in Chicago. He tapes auditions using that story as his. Well, it worked. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it yeah, totally yeah, works. Yeah. It's good advertising. So, um, so then I I ended up flying to L.A. for the first time, getting a GPS. They sent me on. I was driving all over that city taking meetings. I booked a guest star spot on a CBS show, Intelligence. 
And I met with David Fincher at, at, after a harrowing week of not being allowed to meet him because they didn't know if my HBO schedule would allow me to do the sure. film. So they were keeping us apart. <laughs> um, and then I went in and I read with David. We read the whole arc of Margot in a little room and he read opposite me and gave me some adjustments. And then they said, well, you'll, you know, you hear something in 10 days, but great job or what have you. And I was shooting that television show like two weeks later, I got the call that I booked Gone Girl. So then I went back to New York and shot the pilot of The Leftovers and I'm only in one scene. So that was right. a 115 degree day, though we were, oh boy. yeah, the Girl Scouts were dropping like flies. <laughs> and, um, and then I went off almost immediately to Missouri to start shooting Gone Girl. So we were in Missouri for six weeks. Then we went to studio in L.A. So that was the most time I'd ever been in L.A. in my life. And then as soon as Gone Girl wrapped, I was starting season one of The Leftovers. It got picked up. So I actually shot that film before I did the rest of the show. Right. And so when all this is happening, and it went, it seemed to have happened pretty quickly, I mean, do you ever have a moment where you're, where, where you're able to sort of like put it in perspective, or you're just kind of like doing, you know, one thing after the next? And, you know, or, you it know. has felt awfully nonstop for the past yeah. three years, because of course, then, you know, you know, you're doing a TV show, and then Fargo comes along, and I jumped right onto Fargo. And so I feel that it's only now in my life where I'm looking back and saying, what an astonishing whirlwind that was i mean i'm now i'm coming on four years of marriage i cannot believe it was four years ago that tracy and i got married and you know having met two years prior to that and it's just it's it's pretty strange and it's it feels like a cautionary tale i I just want to say to young actors it doesn't normally go like this i hope it does yeah for you um, I mean, it can, I guess, you know, it absolutely and can. do you feel like, I mean, this is maybe a trite question, but like, do you feel like it happened because you were ready for it or like, did I you, do believe yeah. in that. I, I, in some ways, I don't necessarily believe in luck. I believe in openness to opportunity. And sometimes when we think we know what the path looks like, our focus can be very narrow and we miss doors that are opening. And it's true that when, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf happened in Chicago, it was, I had been in the Steppenwolf many times. I'd been called back many times, but I'd never booked anything. And that was the moment. I was ready to walk into that room and feel like I belonged there. And that's been true of just about every project. They have come at me when I was ready. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. So with the leftovers, um, I mean, doing Gone Girl with David Fincher, that's kind of a no brainer doing Virginia Woolf with, you know, that, but like leftovers was a little bit more of a, of a sort of question mark because, mm-hmm. you know, certain series don't always work in terms of adaptations of books or whatever but did that feel did you have a certainty about that show and or about damon or or? i certainly felt uh an immediate kinship with nora durst even when i read the book yeah i she's not actually as prominent in the book as you might think and i i wanted more of her when i read it i'm a big fan of tom parada's and i knew he was involved in the series so that is great i knew that damon lindelof had um a storied history in the industry. You know, he was sort of the first celebrity showrunner because of Lost. Lost was not something I had watched from beginning to end. I caught the end, which meant I could predict everything that was going to happen because I didn't have all the history. <laughs> right. But um, so I knew that in terms of the television world, he was a big deal. And it was HBO. And I, I'd always respected the material HBO had put out. But I had not. I didn't have any intention of going into TV and film specifically. I had done commercials in chicago i had done guest star spots in chicago but i was making my living as a theater actor in the midwest i was fine doing that and so i actually didn't really have enough time to be scared i didn't have enough time to know the the water i was swimming in 
which is a wonderful way to, mm-hmm. to move through your life, just sort of joyfully and ignorantly. It's kind of lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, I said yes. And it was my first TV job. You have to start somewhere. What was the biggest, like, I don't know, the biggest learning curve or like the, the, the you know, I mean, you, kind of, you sometimes hear about actors who've never done t- television or film saying, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to hit my mark or what that even was. Right. Or was there anything like that for you? Well, I knew sort of rudimentary vocabulary, yeah. but when I went to Gone Girl... David's vocabulary is very sophisticated, as well as Ben Affleck's and Kim Dickens and all these people that have been doing this for, you know, over 20 years. And so I remember my first day of scene work. We started doing exteriors down in mm-hmm. Missouri. So that was easy. That's getting in and out of SUVs and getting to know your, you know, Tyler Perry and Ben Affleck. But my first scene day, David kept saying, I'm not getting enough screen direction. And he was instructing me to lift my head at this particular angle and then pick up a magazine and do it in a very specific order. And I was confused about the order and I didn't know what he meant, what he needed. And it f- eventually from Video Village, I heard him go, you can't do it. And he was frustrated. And Ben was really sweet. He's like, don't worry about it. No big deal. Tomorrow's a new day. He was very lovely. But I was terrified I was going to get fired because people get fired. Mm-hmm. And we, we were very early in the process. But I, I got to talk to David and I said, you've hired somebody that doesn't know this stuff and you need to help me a little bit because when I know what you need, I promise you, I can give it to you. And the thing about David is that he's a perfectionist, and so am I. So we, after that, we got along so well because he would show me what he needed. He would he would say, Carrie, come look at the monitor. See this shot? I need you to glide out on your right foot. You can't move. Whatever it was that he required of me, he would show me. So I got to go to this kind of incredible acting film school with David Fincher. Yeah. And we had a ball. I, he's, he's really fun. He was particularly relaxed, I'm told, by his wife, Sion, who's also his producer, um, in that film. And so... He's very funny. He's got a very dry sense of humor, yeah. which I share. I mean, you do hear these stories about like we did seventy takes or whatever. Yeah, that's but, true. Yeah, that's but, absolutely true. But there's a like a non there's a non I don't know laborious way to do that. I guess like you can ha- you can still I mean, be fun I was and interesting. Desperate for as many takes as I could get. Yeah, because I'd never done it before and I wanted it to be good. The thing about David when you're doing seventy takes is you know he's not going to quit till he gets what he needs. Mm-hmm. So you can leave the day fairly confident that you've gotten everything. He That's true. Of you, which is yeah. actually kind of reassuring in a way. It eliminates um, all that kind of second guessing. Yes, because it's like we did everything yeah. we could possibly yeah. do with that line. <laughs> yeah. And every, every now and then you'd get something in five takes or seven takes, and then you feel really good about yeah. yourself, and everybody <laughs> makes fun of you, and you know. <laughs> so, so you did that, and then you went into like the full series of of leftovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, you felt like pretty confident in the medium, and, and no, no. no? <laughs> <laughs> well, the other the the challenge so. When you're working on a film as a supporting part, there's a lot of time when you're in a scene, but you're not saying anything or and movies are very slow. So when I showed up for my first day of real scene work on The Leftovers, it was the scene with Chris Eccleston in episode two. Maybe it's one episode two. It must be when we had the argument in the kitchen and we did we did one part of the scene and we did it three times. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is feeling pretty good. Okay, here we go. And they're like, okay, great, moving on. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Hey, I was just getting warmed up over here. Like, what are we doing? So it was then I had to adjust myself to the pace of television, which is totally different than a film, especially a Fincher film that you shoot for 100 days. So that was a rude awakening. And then the emotional requirements of The Leftovers were also quite different. I had one emotional scene in Gone Girl, but nothing like what I was asked to do in The Leftovers. And, you know, repeating a catharsis is not simple. No. It's but its very nature is a release. So to stuff it back in and do it again is completely unnatural. And in the theater, you do it once a night. Right. And then you can kind of story to build up to it. And then you, yeah, you come down TV and film. It's like it's 2 a.m. It's time to do your 
crying climax. Get out here. So how do you get there? I mean, or do you have to kind of like recalibrate the, you know, the, the re- your re- Nora's reaction to something because you can only get so far? Or- no, hopefully you're able to deliver the thing that's required of you every time. I think that's your job. So hopefully I was able to do that as fully as possible. But yeah, you have to figure out what that means for you. So for me, it meant carrying around this book called Wave and reading it on set when I needed to. It was a story of a woman who lost her family in the tsunami. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it became my um, touchstone for that part because I had not experienced grief of that degree, thankfully. And then knowing how to focus yourself on set, even when other things are going on. And fortunately for me, I, I was working in very professional places. So when I had to do the Holy Wayne scene, everybody on set is completely focused on that moment with me so that I can stay in it in between and just sit in a chair and wait for them to be ready and then get up and do it again. And everybody is sort of willing you to do it well Yeah. on a good set. And I always have worked on, you know, really professional sets with amazing camera people and support. Yeah. And it's been great. Well, it's, it's, it shows in the work, I feel mm-hmm. like, you know. Um, so with, with something like Leftovers and Nora and the way that that show and the characters kind of constructed – you don't really know necessarily where any, anything's headed. And and I think one of the great things about that show was that they leave a lot of question marks still kind of lingering at the very end. Mm-hmm. What's the, What are the challenges of playing that kind of unknown? I really came to enjoy it because when you do theater, you obviously know how the play ends. So I always thought it was funny that a writer or it would keep the keep material from a television actor or a television actor would say, no, I don't want to know that so I can – I'm like, well – We know that stuff all the time. We still do it. That's what your imagination's for. But it was really fun to to realize that you were going to get your script two days before you had to shoot it. You had no control over what was going to happen. And you couldn't possibly guess what Damon was going to throw at you. But what's exciting about working with somebody like Damon, which is different from what's exciting about working with Noah Hawley or David Fincher, is that Damon is pursuing things in his actors that interest him. So inevitably what happens is that you're on a very personal journey because he's putting you up against yourself over and over again, your weaknesses, your fears. You know, how many times did he drown Justin Thoreau or make him sing karaoke? <laughs> it's, right. it's like he sniffs out what we're terrified of, our own annihilation, basically, and then makes us confront it over and over again. And I'll miss that. I'll miss not knowing what's coming to me. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there'll be another project that's similar, but this was such a wild and brave world we were playing in and... It didn't adhere to any of the rules, and I, I loved it. It didn't adhere to also kind of the rules sometimes of how television is received. I feel like mm-hmm. because that first season, it had its fair share of fans, but um, the critical kind of consensus hadn't really congealed around the show until season two. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you guys were paying attention to at all? I mean, obviously, you want to get good ratings or whatever, but sure. like... Well, yeah, what you're really wondering about is what, is what does my life look like? Right. And our pickups were so late you're really beholden to that contract. So you can't put yourself out there for other work. So as an actor, out of self-interest, you're always monitoring what's going to happen with the show you're on. And of course, you want it to continue. Um, and there was a lot of uncertainty. There was some question of them picking up the whole show, moving it to a new town with a new cast and showing another town's experience. Mm-hmm. So none of us knew if we were going to be returning. And none of us knew where we were going to shoot when we did. So there was a lo- there were a lot of question marks. And um, as an actor, though, you're kind of accustomed to living that way. There's a lot of uncertainty. We have very little control over our circumstances. The only power we have is no. <laughs> and even that you don't get for a long time. You just have to say yes all the time. So, yeah, I guess I was hopeful that it was going to be received well. I also knew, though, that our first season was pretty humorless. And I know that 
anybody who's dealt with a tragedy, anybody who's a human being knows that humor is such a critical part of being a person in the world. Yeah. And if you don't have a sense of humor, you're actually, it actually feels inauthentic. So I think the, the real shift we made in season two, besides adding some really extraordinary cast members and Regina King and Kevin Carroll and Jasmine and Giovanna Depo, um, particularly, was that we recovered a sense of humor and it just got funnier and weirder as it went on. And I think that really made it feel actually more tethered to the real world. Were there any moments where you were like, oh, okay, this is too weird? I mean, I think season three, the way that it's set up, you're just like, what the heck is going yeah, on? I mean, like, by then you just have given up yeah. everything. Um, certainly the first time I read, well, I can tell you that in season one, when they had the scene where Nora had a gun in her purse. Right. Yeah. I remember going and saying, guys, so, so exciting. What, what is this for? This gun? And they were like, we don't know. <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah, we don't know. I was like, okay, okay, great, great. <laughs> so when that scene came up and I, and what it was for was having a prostitute shoot me in the chest, I was like, I'm not sure <laughs> the people are going to go with us on this one, but I'll sell it as hard as I can. And that was the first thing we shot on that episode, which was wow. my big, the most I'd ever shot on TV in my life that 10 days. Yeah, it's it's quite a an introduction to a character's kind of inner life. Like, yeah, you yeah, know. It was great. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's such a a special show, and I think that it means a lot, or a lot of a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I want to ask you about that ending. You know, spoiler alert. But um, but what be, before that, like, what does the show kind of mean for you? Like, if you were seeing it as an audience member, what would you take out of it? Do you think, or maybe hard to answer because you were on it? But I remember when season one aired, and some of the criticism that was leveled at the show was about how it felt hopeless, and to me. What it actually was, much like Tom's book, was a testament to how human beings will strive to continue to find meaning in a world that is maybe very apparently meaningless. And we're just built that way. And that examination is, you know, that's the preoccupation of philosophy going back to the foundations of civilization. What are we doing here? What is our purpose? And that's that's the question the show was always asking for me, which is a question I ask in my life. So for me, I was al- always interested in the investigation. And also, the thing about Damon is that he's not a cynical guy. And so I knew that it kept coming back to love. It kept being tethered to love. And I think we ended that way, most certainly. So for me, the show always felt like a testament to resilience, um, to the to the ability of human beings. My dad always used to say when I was little, He would say, life will out, that wherever there is any kind of destruction, something will emerge. And and that's that's a pretty astonishing revelation if you're willing to embrace it. And so for me, that that always felt like a very large idea we were we were dancing with. And I was grateful to be making art on TV where things can be very disposable that felt like it was asking some real questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of questions. Uh, fans of the show, viewers of the show will know what I'm, what I mean when I ask. Do you think at the end, do you think that Nora is telling the truth? I'll never tell. Yeah. Because it robs, it robs a viewer of their own experience. Yeah. And what I think doesn't matter. I'm just an actor on a show. Yeah. And though I am Nora Durst, the reality is that the performance wouldn't change. If whatever I have decided, the performance would actually be the same because the goal is the same. It's to convince Kevin whether it's real or not. So. It's so interesting how, what a burning question that is for people. Yeah. But the fun of it is, what does it say about you? You know, what did you think? Um, I, I'm the credulous type. I was like, I think she went and it mm-hmm. really happened and she saw her family and knew that it, you know, so I believe it. And, you know? and that says yeah. so much about yeah. who, who you are in the world and how you, yeah. how you perceive the world. 
When we were on set, it was about a 50-50 split with the crew. Most of our screenings have been about 70-30 with people believing her. Interesting. And Damon was really struck by that. He thought there would be more skepticism about the story, but Damon and I never talked about it. Yeah. I mean, I was genuinely surprised. I think the next morning when I was like looking at recaps, I was like, wait, people thought she was, like, lying? she was lying? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. It's a really, it's an interesting kind of Rorschach test, mm-hmm. I guess. It um, really is. Yeah. Um, so your other kind of big TV project this year, uh, Fargo, which you're Emmy nominated for. Congratulations. It's really exciting. Um, you're going to the show, I assume. And, you know. I mean, I, I don't know why I should bother. <laughs> I guess it's going. quite a category. It's, it's just, so, yeah. I keep saying I'm going to just get some silky pajamas and watch <laughs> it in my bed because it's just, I can't believe I'm included. Well, <laughs> hey, it's great. I mean, it's um, so that the show might seem at first kind of, I guess, tonally different than The Leftovers. Mm-hmm. But I think that both shows are about kind of existential questions, mm-hmm. particularly your season of Fargo. I think yes. with your squaring off against David Thewlis, his character, there's a lot of stuff that relates to current political catastrophes yes. <laughs> about if you can confront these kind of massive systems that seem sort of rigged against us and, you know, is there any point in fighting against this kind of right. thing? Is that, was that sort of political tenor like on your, your minds when you were making it or like what? There's no room I've been in since November where it, we haven't talked about politics in about 10 minutes. Yeah. It's sort of inevitable right now, at least where we're living. You know, I'm, I'm not fighting for my basic survival and therefore every five minutes I'm talking about politics. I, I re- I realize the, privilege of the position i'm in to worry about the things i get to worry about but that's what artists are supposed to do damon lindelof and noah hawley are filtering the world that they are living in through their own creative genius and they're making something out of that that helps them understand or helps them live in the world and so fargo is always ridden on this trope of is this a true story and this this thing about alternative facts waltzes into the world and it just makes perfect sense that it would fit into Fargo the way that it does. This idea that reality is now in question and that without facts, you can't make a rational argument. And if you can't make a rational argument, how can you reason through and make a law and how can you convince people that they should follow it? And, and like you say, how futile is this fight against systems that seem oppressive and um, do we have a responsibility to fight that fight or do we just try to get what we can get out of it and exploit other people because it's the survival of the fittest, right? These are really important questions. They're questions. We're in a real crisis moment, I think. Um, my husband's fond of saying, as, as all these commentators on TV say, we have to decide what kind of country we want to be. He always says, we decided. We already decided. Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty dark perspective and he kind of, you know, he, <laughs> he has some brighter days. I don't right. think he'd still be writing plays if he really believed that that he didn't feel he had a responsibility in the world but it is unnerving especially as we're you know burying ourselves in plastic and maybe being distracted from the actual existential things that might really kill us Mm -hmm. so um i really respect the way noah took the world we were living in and was an alembic for it and it's a way that we can examine our circumstances from a safe distance and that's what entertainment quote unquote is for it's what the Greeks and the Romans used theater for. It was to say, here's a moral question, and now you have to take a stand. And that's why I think the ending, again, an ending I won't, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we didn't talk about, so I don't know what happens yeah. really. But um, it's interesting because the first draft of it was much more weighted toward Varga. Mm-hmm. Gloria spoke much less and didn't have that sort of more powerful speech about really what's it, what it is to live in America. And so 
they rebalanced it a little bit and then it became more of a 50-50 question, which I'm glad they did just because I think it's really because it's what we needed. I think the world was feeling too tenuous. And had they put the more cynical version of that out there, I think it would have been hard for people to take. Mm-hmm. So um, I feel like that that makes makes Fargo this year particularly active and relevant in its investigation. And I, I feel really privileged to be a part of this season in particular because, you know, it was therapeutic for all of us to be working on something that at least was engaged with characters who were trying to confront that system or participating in that system so we could ask ourselves those questions. Yeah, and I think it's a it's 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 really fortunate um, that people are able, some people, lucky people, are able to work through these kind of mm-hmm. things at work. You yes, know, yes. Um, but do you have anything outside of work that you like? I I know I go to HGTV and I watch like real <laughs> estate shows or whatever. Do you have anything like that in your life? I mean, I I always I love to be outside. I, I'm a person who can't stay indoors all day. My husband can stay inside for ten days in a row. Well, he's a writer. So, I mean, that's yeah. Kind I of guess right. that's what yeah. they do. Yeah. Um, masochistic, maybe. Um, <laughs> So I like to, I like to get outside and take a walk. Um, I'm a big reader. So one of the things I had to do was stop looking at the news at night. Um, I read every night before bed. So I always try to find lately having a good book to read has been super critical because it gives me a place to go when things feel a little unmanageable. Like something fiction, fiction or? Yeah. I mean, I, it varies. For example, I just finished doing the papers with Steven Spielberg. So while that was going on, I was reading Catherine Graham's, um, wonderful biography called Personal History. And so sometimes I like to read uh, in a way that's relevant to the thing I'm working on just to keep my head space in the right <laughs> the right arena. It can be really hard to read fiction when you're memorizing lines or so sometimes I I tend toward nonfiction when I'm working but um but lately yeah I've been, I've really needed an escape at night. So I do that a lot. And you know, all the usual things, exercise. Yeah. My husband and I love to cook. We when mm-hmm. inevitably if we're together we're we're cooking six nights a week if we can and and also getting ready for a play has been a nice distraction yeah, for me. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that and about the, you know, you very casually dropped a Steven Spielberg <laughs> reference. I know, I've become a terrible yeah. name dropper yeah. since no, well, hey, months you ago. know, what, what can you do? Everybody's um, in it. So what was that experience like? I mean, Spielberg, oh, that's a big deal. I mean, it's, it's a very big deal. It's interesting because within the same month, I worked with both Steve McQueen and Steven Spielberg. Oh my God, that's right. You're doing yeah, Dean McQueen Widows movie. as yeah. well. Now I wow. just did a few days on Widows. It was a pretty quick, um, pretty quick work, but the caliber of actors I'm coming up against is pretty astonishing. You know, I was in scenes with Viola Davis and a little bit with Liam Neeson and then moving over into the Spielberg movie. It's Merrill and it's Tom Hanks, but then it's this incredible cast of characters from TV and film in 2017. The IMDb like, just cast oh, list is insane. It's yeah. so, it's so yeah. ridiculous. So I've been awfully spoiled this year, but it was great. Steven Spielberg is a lovely, generous man who loves what he's doing and tom hanks and meryl streep have been making movies for decades and they love doing it and that's really infectious yeah um and uh that that's going to be out like later this year right Mm -hmm. and and so is there any and with the emmys coming up we are ostensibly a podcast about sort of award season so like i have to ask like is that stuff that you pay attention to i mean do you do like see a movie that you could be in like the spielberg movie and say oh that's an oscar movie unfortunately I don't have the luxury of having that conversation with myself right. because I still have to fight for every job I get. I mean, that's not entirely true. I, I was offered Fargo because Noah knew my work and was able to talk to Damon and, and the, you know, studio approved of me or what have you. But in terms of film work, I, I wish I could say this is the role I'm going to do that's going to be nominated. <laughs> right. But the truth is it's, um, it's a real dog eat dog world out there and about 12 people have to die before I'm top of that list. So <laughs> that's not going to happen. Um, 
I guess I'm, I guess the deeper into the business I get, the more I'm conscious of those things. Yeah. Like that this movie's being placed for Oscar consideration means it comes out in November, December or what have you. But I, I, I can't say that I'm totally savvy about all that stuff. Are you a viewer of those things? Do you, do you, do you have I like a. I never an... see as many movies as I should. Yeah. I'm always behind. You know, the Oscars roll around and inevitably I haven't seen any of them and I have to sort of rush to catch up and. Um, and I also like to see movies with my husband. I don't tend to see movies when he's not around. He's a big movie buff. So he's kind of my, my movie guide. <laughs> um, I always, if I'm working on location, he'll come visit and it's, it becomes very apparent that I haven't even turned on the television. I don't know how. <laughs> I haven't watched anything. So, um, I'm always a little behind the eight ball. Well, now you're, you're kind of, you're putting screen stuff aside and doing a play, mm-hmm. kind of your first, you know, your first love, if you want to call it that. Um, can you talk to us about this play? Like, is that sure. New York Theater Workshop and mm-hmm. what, what it is? And It's Amy Herzog's new play. Oh, she's great. She's really yeah. great. And it premiered at Yale Rep earlier this year. This is the New York premiere at New York Theater Workshop. It's a great cast, all women. I think five of us, if I'm correct. Um, none of whom I've worked before, but several of whom um, I've, I've known their work for a long time. And it's a play that I did a reading of very early when Amy was writing it, a very early reading. So it, we had a very personal connection. I had a very personal connection to it. So the fact that it came around in the calendar in such a way that I could do it was really, we were all very surprised <laughs> that I was available to do this run, um, much to the chagrin of my publicists who are trying to get me an Emmy. Um, so it's about a woman, a single mother, who has a child with a very severe degenerative disorder, congenital disorder, a child that's never been able to eat or breathe on his own. And she has these nurses who live, who are coming and going, these people that she wouldn't ordinarily encounter unless she'd been living this particular life with her son. And so it's these conversations with these women basically coming in and out um, in her apartment and then in the, the PICU, which is the, you know, infant um, emergency ward, basically. And Amy Herzog has a child with a very severe um, disorder and lives this life, though she's partnered. She has Sam Gold, who's um, helpful, of course. I mean, they're, it's their child. But she, I believe that the play actually is about Amy's spirituality. Because if you hear it's a play about a single mom of a sick kid, you think, oh, that's going to be yeah. heavy. But this woman is quite naturally um, sort of easy and light and that's not something i get asked to do very often though it's much closer to my personality than the things that i play i hope right. yeah no, like, no no she's yeah, yeah. lugubrious and yeah. guys she's been crying this whole time and you can't you can't tell <laughs> so it's actually really nice for me to go do something that actually sits a little closer to who i actually am these other things are much further from me than this character and it's not maudlin there's not a lot of crying it's really a spiritual piece and it's an unusual structure and it's good for me to get back in a room like that and have to do the work of that deeper, deeper investigation into a scene. Because in TV and film, you get 12 tries and you're done. And then yeah. you forget it. It's very different to keep discovering something for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, it just puts me back in touch with my own taste. Will this be your first play since Virginia? No, no. no. I've, um, I've been back on stage just about every, every two years. Oh, that's good. Okay. Um, I, did a, I did a small play um, called Placebo at Playwrights Horizons about two years ago. And I did my husband's play at the beginning of 
season three this year, I was in Chicago commuting between Austin okay. and Chicago doing Tracy's play Mary Page Marlowe, which is actually coming to New York. Um, not our production. There's a new production being put up at um, Second Stage this oh, I season. I think I read a review. For this yeah, summer. Yeah, that yeah. sounded really good. Yeah, yeah. it's really – oh, it's I mean, so I saw beautiful. August three times on Broadway. Oh, Once did. with Felicia Rashad, which was incredible. <gasps> yes, yeah, that was, yeah, a, that was yeah. a really – that was a fun time. I mean, they had great replacements all throughout yeah. the run, but um, I never saw it. I've never seen it. You never saw August Lysus nope. Channing? Wow. I was doing Shakespeare in Wisconsin when it was taking the world by storm, and I thought Tracy Letts was a girl. I didn't know anything that about it. That's fascinating. Yeah, isn't that funny? Well, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll do it again someday. You can I think, see it. well, yeah. they're coming up on their 10th anniversary. That's crazy. So there's going to be a 10-year anniversary production, inevitably. So I'll see it. Yeah, good. You should. It's, it's, it's a good play. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so you've done Spielberg. You've done television. You're doing theater. Is there anything? What, what do you want to do next? Like, is there a role you want to tackle? I want to is do there a, a comedy? A comedy. I, I, I would. I, that's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not a joke. My family really can't understand why I'm doing all this serious work. They don't think of me as a particularly serious person. They think of me as a very clumsy, messy person. But, um, that's something I'd like to do that yeah. would be different. Something I want to do something I haven't done before. Do you sing? Not formally. Okay. I can't walk and sing at the same time like those actually talented people. <laughs> but um, my I grew up playing guitar with my dad. We all sort of sing a little bit with guitar. And so something like that would be fun to do. I just – I don't want to play a grieving cop mom, which is what inevitably comes to you after you play those parts sure. on TV. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and is there any way that like are you just kind of like seeing what comes next or you are you can you can you be active in that process or like yeah i think i think as any woman in this business who's starting to get a little older has to turn an eye to producing otherwise you're not going to get you're not going to get asked to do anything we've seen it with reese witherspoon with her amazing production company all the properties she's purchased big little lies you know she's she's really helmed a lot of those female-centric projects and a lot of women are, are are going in that direction. Gone Girl included. Yeah, Gone Girl included. Frances yeah. McDormand, I think, was largely a big part of getting um, Olive Kittredge produced. So mm-hmm. I, I suspect that what's going to happen is I'll be looking for things I'm interested in doing. That requires more activity on my part and some free time. So that's probably what will happen. But it's funny when people ask me what I want to play next. I just think, well, I haven't read it yet. Right. You know, I'll know it when I read it. But it will be something I haven't done. Uh, and and would you, you know, sign that seven season contract for a show right now? Or are you kind of like in this more the, the shorter run things? I mean, it, I, it is. I, I do really like the limited series. Yeah. It, there's something about not being stuck and knowing that if you start to fall into your bag of tricks, it's going to be over soon. Right. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, some of that stuff's not really sustainable. The writing would have to be so good to sustain a premise for more than five years. And I was offered a couple of those projects, a handful of projects, right after Fargo finished, and I wasn't ready to commit yeah. five or eight years of my life, especially right now when I was sort of I'm, – I'm, it's kind of a peak moment for me, and I want to be very, very particular about what I do next. And I also don't have to do anything, so I get to be patient and wait. That's the luxury of having some modicum of success is that you get to wait. Yeah. So I'm waiting. Well, we can't wait to see what you do next, whatever Thank it you. is. Um, and, you know, break a leg on stage. Um, Come I, see it. Yeah, I, I'm going to. Yeah. All right. Mary Th- Jane, yeah. New York Theater Workshop. When, when does it run through? Uh, we start previews in September. Okay. I don't have a date. I'm right. the worst. Well, we'll, 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 we could figure it out. Thank you. Well, thank you, Carrie. This is great. Thanks for having yeah. me. 
Well, that does it for this week's episode of Little Gold Men. Uh, I'm closing out the episode instead of Katie because uh, her power went out in North Carolina. So we're just now, it's just me here alone talking to you. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, you can follow us at Little Gold Men. uh, Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, please. That really helps us get new listeners into, you know, just getting feedback is, is important for us. You can follow me at Rylaws, Katie Rich at, at Katie Rich, Joanna at Joe Wrote This, Mike at Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was produced by Jennifer Lyon, edited by Jordan Bell. Thanks as ever to Andy Bowers of Panoply. And this week's award for the best way to cope with summer Instagram goes to Katie Rich. Aha, their life is terrible too. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.